Section six of The Soul of London by Ford Maddox Ford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter three. Work in London. The Thames is the oldest, as it is the most majestic of the roads into London, but its character as a road is obscured, justly enough. Along the others we travel to reach our work, our love, to meet our death. Along the Thames those who travel are working always, the passengers it bears leave it at the very gates of London. Gravesend, with its high front of piers characteristic in their dark and rigid architecture of piles, is a place of romance to the sailor who comes to London from the deep waters. It is the signal that, after his ninety days of empty sea and empty sky, he has come very near to his harbours. Sailors speak of the place with the remembrance of old and good times, giving a soft look to the eyes, a soft tone to the voice. They are the look and tone of those who think about old emotions, of pleasure, of impatience, of the times when they said, only a day more now. The river-front of Gravesend means that. On the other bank, a square, large red hotel, faces these pile structures across the broad grey sweep of water and air. It marks the gates of the lowest docks, and here, for the river, psychological London begins. It does not much matter whether the ship turns in there at Tilbury, or whether it works up to the docks in Galleon's Reach, or to the others in the heart of town itself. Work for them ends there. It is taken up by the red-sailed barges. They tack in their engrossed manner across and across the wide reaches. They pass under the shadow of dull clouds, of rain-squalls, under watery sunlight, the arms of aligned cranes, the smoke from factory chimneys. They linger, going about, in front of bluffs covered with grey buildings and black trees. In exposed stretches of water they are covered, right over the hatches, by the wash from the sea-tarnished sides of steamers so vast, so silent in their motions, so centred in themselves, that as, from the deck of a barge, one looks at their passing, it is hard to realise that they, and not the low banks that they obscure and seem to swallow up, are gliding by. These barges running up from Rotherhithe, or from much farther out to sea, pass cement factories, sand-works, anchored groups of skiffs where sand is hauled laboriously in buckets from the bottom of the river, they pass petroleum depots where, side by side, grey retorts are like those of gas-works. They pass candle-factories and manure-warehouses. They tack about gravely one after another beside a black smallpox hospital that, out in the river, is one half-ship and the other a pier, with a dingy and mournful resemblance to those of fashionable watering-places. They move, these barges, in squadrons, in a continual and mazy slant, red sail cutting diagonally across red sail, with here and there a large rent, and here and there a white patch. They give the character to this road into London, to this river of toil. Their only rivals are the sludge-boats, a fleet of large steamers owned by the county council. These are running in a continuous string. They go swiftly downstream, low in the water, and showing all black. They come back empty, so high in the bows that a great streak of red shows from the keel upwards. They swing round in front of one or other of the sewage-works, 
ready to take in another cargo to drop into the sea beyond the Nore as soon as the tide serves. The barges, however, carry coke, carry sand, carry gravel, and a hundred other things. Occasionally one loaded very high with a stack passes them all, looking for all the world like a man buried beneath a haycock. Occasionally these two are passed by very gaily painted, astonishingly swift racing barges, that thread the close traffic like brilliant shuttles, and roar and rustle through the water. So at last, keeping out of the way of the sludge-boats, out of the way of powder-barges, of great steamers of the famous lines, of swift fish-carriers that raise an enormous wash, and of the bell-steamers that they detest most of all, the small flotillas come to the top of Tipcock Reach. Hitherto the factories have been scarce, mostly unsavoury and solitary, but a beacon rises up beyond the wharf of a powder-factory that faces a manure-warehouse. This beacon is spindly, tall, of iron lattice-work, and all beyond it the river runs as between high walls, shining with a more metallic glitter under smoke and the shadow of groves of masts, crane-arms, chains, cordage. A train of the large steamers lies heavy on the water, hooting signals to agents ashore, waiting at the dock-gates for water enough to enter. This is Galleon's Reach, and from here upwards London offers a solid black facing to its river. From here, too, the little companies of barges begin to break up. Some stop near the dock-gates, some turn into the London canals, some wait near Waterloo, some go far above the bridges. Here, at any rate, the river as a road into London ends. It is, all the time, a grey tide of work, a moving platform of workers. Workers in London divide themselves, roughly, into those who sell the labour of their bodies and those who sell their attentions. You see men in the streets digging trenches, pulling stout wires out of square holes in pavements, pecking away among greasy vapours at layers of asphalt, scattering shovelfuls of crushed gravel under the hoofs of slipping horses and under the crunching tyres of wheels. If walls would fall out of offices, you would see paler men and women, adding up the records of money paid to these others. That, with infinite variations, is work in London. You get the two things united here and there. The other day I was in Tilbury Docks. It is difficult to get away from this river. The vast empty squares of water lay parapeted, arbitrary and dim in their eternal perspectives, the straight lines of the water, the straight lines of the parapets, of the bottoms of the goods sheds, of the tops, of the grey corrugated roofs, all dwindled together into the immense and empty distances. The rows of four-footed, gaunt, inactive cranes, painted a dull rust-colour, and the few enormous steamers at the inner ends of the quays, all these things were wetted, fused and confused in their outlines, beneath a weeping sky in which a drapery of clouds had the look of a badly blotted water-colour painting, still wet and inefficient. Knots of stevedores, in dim and neutral-coloured clothes, seemed to be doing nothing perfunctorily in the shadow of the great hulls. A big, red-faced, heavy-moustached man in blue clothes, and with cheerfully brass-bound cap and shoulders, hurried out of a tin shed. It was labelled Office of the Steam Navigation Company. 
he slipped hastily between the black side of one of the huge sheds and a grey, rusty and sea-fretted liner. Her lower sides gaped in large holes screened with canvas, and from moment to moment, obscured by grimy buckets of coal that rose from a lighter, her square, white, upper-deck cabins were being painted more white by painters in white jackets. He hurried very fast, with a masterful and engrossed step, a cheerful blue figure with pink cheeks, dodging mechanically the pools of greasy water and the fat black mud between the sleepers. He dived into another small office. He was the chief officer of the liner that was coaling, and he had a pencil behind his ear. He was uniting, as it were, the labours of the men shovelling in the buckets of coal, of the men uttering melancholy wails as they swung in a white boat, of the men hooking up long planks for the painters to sit on, and of the painters themselves on the upper decks. With that pencil he controlled all their labours, as if he were twisting them into an invisible rope which passed through that tin office and up, far away into town where other pencils and other pens recorded these things on large pages, digested them into summaries, and finally read them out to boards of directors. Those invisible ropes, they are strong enough in all conscience, seem to be the only tie between these two classes of workers, between these two great camps set one against another. It is astonishing how different London looks from one or from the other end. Speaking broadly, the man who expresses himself with a pen on paper sees his London from the west. At the worst he hopes to end with that view. His London of breathing space, his west end, extends from, say, Chiswick to, say, Portland Place. His dense London is the city as far as Fenchurch Street, his east end ends with what he calls Whitechapel. The other sees his London of elbow-room extend from, say, Purfleet to, say, Blackwall. He is very conscious of having, as it were, at his back, the very green and very black stretches of the Essex marshes, dotted with large solitary factories and small solitary farms. His dense London, his city, lies along the line from Blackwall to Fenchurch Street. Beyond that, the city proper, the city of the bank and the mansion-house, is already a place rather of dilettante trifling. Its streets are tidied up, its buildings ornamented and spacious. The end of the West End is, for him, the Piccadilly Fountain, and this latter quarter of large, almost clean stone buildings, broad-swept streets, and a comparative glare of light, is already a foreign land, slightly painful because it is so strange. That, further west, there may be another enormous London, never really enters his everyday thoughts. He reads about it sometimes, he hears it spoken of. Sometimes, perhaps, in a holiday frame of mind, he goes through it. But it never matters to him. It is never like his familiar, rigid rows of streets, all of blackened bricks, windows that are square openings in boxes, and plasters of blue and white, and begrimed enamelled iron advertisements. These are familiar, these are real life, these are homely, as if warm and alive. The other he does not much want to think about, it would worry him. In just the same way, the pen-worker does not want to think about several dark towns of a million or so east of Whitechapel. It is an unpleasant thought. Given ill luck, a craving for drink, 
disease or one or other of the fatal falls of humanity, he too might have to sink into those gloomy and shadowy depths. The other man is vaguely troubled at the idea of the West. There he would have to be tidy, constrained, worried about specks on his clothes, careful of his tongue, less than a man. These two types, in their mass very human and very comprehensible, are, in general, very foreign and in general very hostile, the one to the other. Yet upon their combined workings the life of London depends. And because there they may work one into another, like the teeth of cogwheels revolving antithetically, London attracts them. For the obvious secret of London, its magnetism, is the work that it offers to be done or to be organised. You go there whether you got your training at the tail of a plough in Kent or in Lithuania, with the most salient fact in your experience the knowledge of a pollard willow, in which there is always a dog-fox asleep, or whether beside the Isis, on the links of St. Andrews, or in the University of Bonn you learnt the sorrows of Achilles, the binomial theorem, or the chemical formulae of all the coal-tar by-products. You go there, whether your ideal is to get a wage of fifteen shillings a week more with lighter work and shorter hours, or whether you dream that, before retiring, you will get yourself turned into a limited company, with a capital of six ciphers at the tail of a numeral, you go there to get something to do. That is the grosser view. But the finer side is the romantic, the adventurous, the dreamer's spirit in mankind, to whom work itself in imagination remains the primal curse. In certain cellars here and there in the city, in cellars that have been oil-clothed and tiled, garnished with rows of hat-pegs and with leather seats like planks along the walls, above white marble-tops that loom like horizontal tombstones, through the delicate films of cigarette-smoke, contending in the dim atmosphere with the delicate fragrance of coffee, in a city mecca, in fact, you will see men sit, their faces of the palest, of the ruddiest, of the blondest, of the most black of eyes, will be all united into one serious frown over black and white stones, like smaller tombstones standing or lying prone, as if in a disastrously wrecked graveyard. A man will rise in a far corner, pull the lapels of his coat one towards another, shake his umbrella a little, and walk away with a swift step and a half-self-conscious air. A young man will look up and lose for a moment his engrossed expression. He will stop his companion's domino in mid-air with, "'Do you know who that is? Why, Plumley!' "'What? Plumley of the Dash United?' They will gaze with half-awe at the disappearing trouser-ends and boot-heels on the stairs. "'Yes. Plumley was only an auctioneer's clerk in Honiton, where my father is, and now look what he's worth. That was what made me come to town. The eyes of both young men will have serious and reflective expressions before they resume their game. They will both be thinking, in one way or another, that what man has done, man can do. Or, on the seat before the ferryman's hut, in a small harbour, you may see a hook-nosed, bearded, begrimed, weather-soiled, and wonderfully alert London bargeman. He will wave his tiny pipe at the faces of half a dozen young fishermen standing in a circle before him. Yes, he will say, you're too young to remember Johnston, but his mother and Mrs. Spence 
who keeps the Blue William here, were first cousins. Bill Johnson of the Britisher. Bill Johnson of the Stumpy called Britisher had, in his childhood, sailed from that port aboard a coaling schooner. Afterwards he had been south, he had been in the Cape Mounted Police, then he had returned to London. He had saved a little money, and bought a share in his Stumpy, which is a barge without a topsail. He had carried freight unceasingly from Rotherhithe into the pool or into the canals. His employers had advanced him money to buy the barge outright. He had carried freights until he had paid them back. And now, his eulogizer comments, he sails that there river, Bill Johnston, with his missus for mate and his kid for apprentice. He's in his own home with a cooking range in the cabin, and a joint hanging in the hatchway for a larder. He's his own master. He comes when he will and he goes. He draws a steady three quid a week. And he's buying up other barges gradual. The young fishermen standing round dive their hands deeper into their russet breeches pockets, and gaze out over the rubble of old boats, cork floats, harbour mud and piles. The old man sucks at his pipe, spits, waves a grimy hand wanting a thumb, and says, just such a lad as you be Bill Johnston were. And a boy moves his hand in his pockets, sighing. Ah! You will see scenes just the same besides the Bay of Naples, and, mutatis mutandis, in Ukraine and the Levant. For London calls out across the lands to the spirit of romance, to the spirit of youth and the spirit of adventure, to the finer spirits. There are such glorious plums, and the thought of them eventually fills alike those city meccas, and the square, blackened brick, balconied dock-dwellings. It fills the bare rooms in Whitechapel, where dark and hook-nosed men sit amid the stench of humanity, their mouths filled with small brass nails, silent amid the rattling clatter of hammers on boot-soles. It fills, too, the behind-counters of large drapers, the very sewers with large, neutral-coloured scavengers, and the great offices in Whitehall. In the whitewashed and grimy courts of Saffron Hill, splendid-limbed, half-nude children tumble, dark-eyed, like the cherubs of Cinquecento pictures, round the feet of dark men puffing cigarette smoke, and fair Venetian girls lean back, smiling and chattering, in bright headcloths, bright neckcloths, bright bodices and bright petticoats against brilliant barrows. Hook-nosed, saturnine and imperturbable old men mix, with the air of sorcerers, flour, vanilla, cochineal and condensed milk, in pewter freezing-pots like infernal machines. The finer spirit, because, to-day as always and for ever, the streets of London are paved with gold. I remember reading somewhere a long time ago, an ingenious article pronouncing boldly, that this splendid figure of speech, this myth shining down the ages, was literally true. I remember the bare existence of the article, but I cannot remember its arguments. It was, perhaps, because the ground in front of the mansion-house is worth its area in sovereigns set on edge. Or it may have been that, according to the writer, the mud trodden underfoot was, for some profound chemical reason, worth its weight in gold. In either case, a favoured few do undoubtedly possess the secret of alchemy, in that everything they touch—mud, too, no doubt—turns to gold. 
and the number of that favoured few is very great, because in London there are so many things to touch. Hence the immensity of London's silent appeal. She calls to all the world. In the old days there were, say, the Holy Land, the wars where thousands of mercenaries cut by turns the throats of Ferraries, of Bolognese, of French, of Burgundians, of Kaiserlicks, and of each other. There were afterwards the Indies, Peru, Mexico, the Spanish Main, then more wars of seven, of thirty years' duration, then the opening up of the silent East, then gold-fields. These things called to the adventurous of succeeding generations for ten centuries. But these appeals were limited. They called only to those who felt able to handle a sword, fire a thatch, cut the rings off a woman's hand, set a sail, shoot in a wood, march a thousand miles, or come out of a death of thirst. They were for the valorous alone who could work with their hands. The appeal of London is far wider. She has seemed for the last century or so to stand on high, offering, like the figure on the Duke of York's column, laurel wreaths to all the world. She seems to hold them for bank clerks and for bargees, for charlatans and the founders of faiths, to poets and to privates in the footguards, to actors as to all sorts of robbers with violence. But the appeal is, on the whole, a modern one. It was not until the wider world of woods and seas was nearly all exploited that the Occidental peoples discovered London. To enter minutely into this movement would be impracticable. It would take one very deep into that odd psychology of statistics that is called political economy. But it had its rise, this modern appeal of London, at about the time of the triumphing principle of free trade. It had its beginning at about the time when the world evolved the equally triumphant principles of limited liability, specialism in labour, and the freedom of knowledge. Footnote. I have, however, just read the book of a well-received political economist, who asserts that it did not. The modern spirit is by him attributed to the consistent, unrelenting, true-sighted policy of five centuries of English governmental action to a protective system which, in fact, was only relaxed when the supremacy had been reached. It isn't, of course, my business to assert the one or the other dogma. The supremacy of London's particular attraction came at about the time of free trade. But free trade itself may have come because just then London had become supreme owing to five centuries of protection. Or the reverse may have been the case. Both are possible enough because in the arena of triumphant principle, pendulums swing backwards and forwards, the undisputed right of today becoming the open question of tomorrow, and the unquestioned wrong of the immediate future. That is a platitude, because it is one of the indisputable verities. In the country, they say that large clocks, when they tick solemnly and slowly, thud out the words, alive, dead, alive, dead, because in this world at every second a child is born, a man dies. But, in London, a listener to the larger clock which ticks off the spirits of successive ages seems to hear above the roar of traffic the slow reverberation, never, again, never, again. As principles rise and die, and rise and die again, for in London, that fact forces itself upon the ear and upon the eye, 
it is a part of the very dust. It is, perhaps, the final lesson of the great human place. Arts rise and die again, systems rise and die again, faiths are born only to die and to rise once more. The only thing constant and undying is the human crowd. End of footnote. It was probably foreshadowed in the opening years of last century by the triumphant figure of Napoleon I. He, more than any one, stands for that other triumphant principle, what man has done, man can do. He raised the standard of the adventurer not only towards respectability, but towards apotheosis. Before his day the great London adventurers were, actively, the Drakes and the Rallies, passively Casanovas and Cagliostros. Roderick Random's idea of making a career, after the wars had failed him, was to pretend in London to be a man of fashion, to victimise an heiress, or in some miraculous way to pick up a patron with influence. There was not, in those days, any other career in the town. McShane's, O'Cregan's, an occasional Colonel Evans, perhaps a French barber spying in the service of the pretender, a few poets like Thompson of the Seasons, and a few bastards like Tom Jones, all these people were obsessed by these two ideas. They sat in their best clothes toying with their snuff-boxes, or ostentatiously winding up jewelled watches in boxes at the opera, they panted to attract the attention of an heiress, or they wrote dedications and feed the footmen of peers. It would be fanciful to make Bonaparte too responsible for the modern type, but he, upon the whole, was the discoverer of the principle, apply yourself to gain the affection of the immense crowd. After his day, the mere heiress and the patron as ends of a career vanish, they remain merely as stepping-stones. But the immense crowd is still the indubitable end. If hardly any of us aspire to its suffrage in its entirety, we have, in London at least, discovered the possibilities of capturing its custom in its smallest trifles. To make a corner in collar-studs would be rather American. The method in London is to invent, or to buy up the invention of, a collar-stud that would appeal straight to the heart of the million, a collar-stud that will be not only in all the street-vendors' trays, but in all the barbers', all the hosiers', all the drapers' windows. It ought to be very cheap, very picturesquely put on the market, and just perishable enough to make a constant supply desirable. The man who did put it on the market would immediately become the Napoleon of the collar-stud. There are already so many of these. There is at least one. I am not sure that there are not several, of the press. Napoleons of the lower finance find their Waterloos every few years. There is a Napoleon of pharmacy, one of the tea-trade, one of grocery, one of underclothing. This is not a mere figure of speech on my part. The words are used month by month by each of these trade journals. There is very obviously one of politics. But that career, as things are in London of to-day, has become comparatively decorative, a hobby for Napoleons in retirement. What one would sigh for is no longer the making of a people's laws, or of a people's songs, but of a people's socks. With that behind one, one may die Chancellor of the Exchequer and a peer of the realm. This, obviously, is desirable enough. 
we sigh very reasonably for businessmen in our cabinets. It is picturesque, too, and inspiring. It brings about kaleidoscopic changes and the wildest of contrasts. It makes life more worth living, because it makes life more interesting and more amusing. The trouble, the defect of this particular quality, is that the work suffers. The workers and their immediate dependents suffer perhaps still more. The two clerks in that city mecca, I happened to be watching them, saw that particular millionaire cross through the cigarette smoke and disappear. He, too, was a Napoleon of a particular financial order, and these two young men, when they rose from their dominoes, pulled together their coats, shook their umbrellas a very little, and set their hats on at a particular angle. They were imitating almost gesture for gesture their hero. I have no means of knowing how much further in the real mysteries of his craft they imitated him. I do not know whether they possessed his tremendous energy, his industry, his nerve, his knowledge of the market, whether they possessed even a shade of his temperament. It is obvious, however, that the great majority do not, that the chance against any average young man is a thousand to one. I used to know rather intimately a talented, and in that sense romantic young man, whom I will call X. X had several irons in the fire. That meant that he had several Napoleons he could imitate. He had a very reasonable competence. He invested it in a certain wholesale business, of which he knew little more than that fortunes were rapidly made in it. He occupied certain offices which looked down on Aldgate Pump. The rooms appealed to his romanticism. He found it extremely picturesque to see women, actually with pails, in London, in the twentieth century, really fetching water. It was interesting, too, to look at the trade-papers, and his office had lockers all round it. They were meant to contain samples of the raw material he traded in. I happened once to open one. It revealed, rather astonishingly, the tin-foil necks of champagne bottles. X sanguinely and amiably explained. Strauss, an awfully sharp man, the Napoleon of the—trade, mm, had his lockered office just round the corner. He always offered his clients—perhaps suitors would be the right word—that particular brand of wine. He kept it in just such a receptacle. That part of the business X attended to with amiability and success. He had also an idea that the banks were advancing his partner money on some sort of cover system. The crop somewhere in the East was going to fail. His partner—X financed this partner—had taken care to be early in the market. As soon as the season commenced they would be making a profit of ninety pounds a week, and with a few more such lucky specs, X would be able to clear out with fifty thousand pounds. He attended at his office thus amiably. He wrote an occasional letter on his typewriter, which was rather fun. He looked out of window at the pump. He countersigned cheques, and genially acknowledged that the trade was full of rogues. From ten until four. Then he hurried westwards to his large white and ormulu house, and sat down to a rosewood Chippendale bureau. He had there another Napoleon before his eyes. End of section six.